0: no purchase necessary vgw group void where prohibited by law 18 plus terms and conditions apply
2: welcome back to the love tennis podcast one of the last love tennis podcasts of the year as the season is drawn to a close i think we can finally say i'm sure there's some well there's always tennis happening everywhere in the world but uh we have to pull up, pull the plug somewhere. And so this maybe is the final end of the professional tennis season until we go into the long, dark winter of two weeks until it starts again. Um, the Davis Cup finals finishing off this evening. We'll, of course, be talking about them. Uh, we'll discuss Joanna Conter, who announced her retirement this week. Uh, and we'll talk about her impact on the game in Britain and, and more worldwide. Um, it has been a coaching split in Igor Shontek's camp. Uh, we'll, of course, talk a bit more about Peng Shui as well and the latest developments there, the WTA stance, um, some of the high profile ATP players now coming out and talking about it as well. Uh, and we might touch upon Serena Williams' decision to write a children's book about her daughter's doll. Uh, but we'll start with some more serious and interesting stuff. Uh, Joanna Conter this week announced her retirement at the age of 30. I think we can agree relatively young, but we'll, we'll talk about that um she's a former world number four she reached the semifinals of wimbledon uh, she also reached the same stage of the australian and french opens uh, us open quarter finalist uh, i think we can probably all agree that she's she's had her fill of 60 seconds of minute run uh 10 million dollars in prize money over a 13-year career as i say got up to world number four four career titles in total uh, and those grand slam achievements that i mentioned um George, I know you were a little bit ahead of the game on, on this one, so you, you, were, you were well aware of what was potentially in the works, so you weren't surprised. Um, are we surprised that Joanna Konta at, at 30 has, has hung up the racket?
0: Um, I think given the last couple of months, not that surprised. Um, you know, the knee injury has kind of taken its toll. Um, we'd spoken a little bit about, the vaccine hesitancy and whether that was going to be an issue next year. Um, we don't know hundred percent sure that is one reason, but that, you know, was something that was perhaps going to come to a head at the start of next year. Um, you know, she's getting married. I think it was a year ago. She was saying she wanted to play for two more years and then was really keen to look at having a family. Um, but I think a few other factors have kind of come in on that uh, She's due to get married, I think this month. Um, so no, not not greatly surprising, but I suppose you know, ten years ago, someone retiring at thirty wasn't really a story, but now it feels like it's a really early retirement, which I suppose is just how sport changes. But um, yeah, I mean, it's been a bit. It's been such a weird like last eighteen months here in so many ways. It's been a weird career, full stop. Actually, when you look back at it, like five years ago, if you just said Joe Conta would be world number four and would reach three Grand Slam semifinals, people would be like, what are you talking about? She'll do well to kind of crack or maybe five years ago, a bit of a stretch, six, seven years ago. Even getting to the top hundred would have seemed like an absolute dream career for her. Mm. Um, but yeah, I think now is perhaps a, a natural closing time given where she is in life, if not a bit strange given she probably could play for another four or five years if she wanted to, if that knee wasn't so bad.
2: Mm. Um, let's go back to the start. George, you mentioned it. <clears throat> maybe even top 100 would have been a, a surprise to some people if you'd said it, you know, eight, nine years ago. Calvin, Joe would have been on your radar a lot longer than, than the rest of us, I'm sure. Um, I mean, maybe, maybe tell us a bit about what it was like when she was in those early days and what the feeling in British tennis was about her, whether anyone thought she was kind of going to be one of the next big things or whether her career kind of came out of the blue.
1: Um, well, she came over from Australia when she was about 18, I think. Um, not sure the exact age, but, um, and she came into the British system and she was basically coached um, almost full time by Louis Kier, Um who, although I didn't know much about him, uh, I didn't know much about her at the time. You kind of know also that Louis Kaye doesn't waste his time on people who he doesn't think can be in the, at the very top level of the game. Louis um, today, who,
2: who people may or may not know, is the man behind most British doubles success these days. He, he seems to have masterminded that.
1: Yeah, he's he's the he's the renowned world's best doubles coach, but he's also, that's, that's sort of a bit of a disservice to him. He's also one of the, the most renowned coach educators in the world. And he's had a pretty good singles record as well. He was Greg Rosetsky's coach through juniors and in, in the early part of his career, and all a sort of load of... Um, top 50 Canadian singles players like Daniel Nestor, who was obviously a good doubles player as well. A guy called Sebastian Leroux back in the 90s, I think made top 10 in the world, made top 20 maybe. Mm. Um, so, yeah, he's he's a, he's a, a top-level coach. He just so happens to be very good at doubles as well. But, um, yeah, he had a very close relationship uh, with Joe Comter and he worked with her for probably about two or three years. I know when I did my Level 5 coaching award, I actually... Louis did that Louis was one of the tutors on it and I had to do a session with um, Joe Conter. We had to sort of coach her and they'd watch it and assess us on how we did. So that's when I first came across her, uh, really.
2: And and was there, you know, obviously, as you say, working with Louis gave you some suggestion that there was there was hope she could be a pretty high level player, but I suppose it she came through in a period when there wasn't a lot of quality in the women's game in Britain. Is that unfair?
1: No, it's. I mean, maybe maybe it is unfair, yeah, because what is quality? There was maybe no top top fifty players, but there was a lot of there was a few who. I mean, Laura Robson was coming through, and, and what we had huge hopes for Laura Robson at the mm-hmm. time. Um, but also Heather Watson had, had just sort of come to, was breaking through from juniors and that kind of thing. So, um, there there was those, and Anki Athavon was still playing, and there was a few guy, a few girls hanging around outside the top. Hundred as well like Katie O'Brien players like that so maybe you know and I guess we the sort of expectation was that she'd kind of be another one of those Mm. Um, could end up with a a career of anywhere from 150 to 50 and, and probably not higher so in that regard she massively overachieved
0: I think the great kind of paradox of Conta's career is that she obviously got everything out of her career you could almost hope in so many ways you know I don't think any of us would sit here and honestly say she, given the other players who were around, she was, even though she reached world number four, you wouldn't, looking at all the attributes of the players that were in the top 20 at the time, you wouldn't necessarily say she was the fourth best player in the world. But the strange thing about her career was she actually was in so many good positions to win slams. Like it, it, she almost underachieved from the positions she was in. I mean, she lost to Venus Williams in. You know, which on paper, looking at Venus Williams' career and Joe Conta's career isn't a terrible loss, but actually at the stage of Venus Williams's career, to lose to her in the way she did in the Wimbledon semifinals was a little bit disappointing. I kind of had Conta coming in as favourite at that stage, which seems a bit odd. Um, and then Venus kind of ran out of gas against Muguruza. You know, she then had that great chance in the French Open semi-finals, which in itself is mental because she'd never gone past the first round of the French Open. But by the time she'd got to the semifinals playing over you know, even at that stage, Barty hadn't won a slam, who went on to, you know, roll Vondrusova over. That, that felt like an opportunity at the time. There was a Wimbledon where she lost um, to the Czech, whose name is escaping me now. Really good doubles player. But that was a big shock in the, quarterfinals or semifinals of that as well um so you know she had moments where draws had really opened up for her and she could go and win it um but obviously that that, that also doesn't tell the full story of it was a player who's really taken the most out of her career um even with a fairly ruthless nature of casting coaches every year she was very single-minded and I think her mind was probably one of the things that got her really high up in terms of her you know, you'd always hear her going on about the process and this very kind of dedicated way of doing things. Sometimes you're like, just get a second serve return in rather than go for the process of just absolutely whacking it in the big moments. But, you know, it, it, it's really hard to kind of sum up her career. I, I think, like, it's amazing, but also a, a case of what if to a degree.
1: Yeah, I, I think that's, that's the thing. George made a good point there, that she's her whole career is kind of a paradox, that she's she's overachieved and also underachieved. Um, or should have or should maybe have, have won a slam she sort of you would say that her strength was her mentality but it was also a huge weakness because it, it would she was in this position where like she'd take like 20 seconds to do, with this weird ball bouncing technique that she had and everything had to be so on point for her before she would start a point and that kind of thing and she, she couldn't adapt to certain situations and um yeah, you know, it, 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 she, she has had a, a really, really strange career. And also, on top of that, a career also seems to have, have happened in, in kind of two, maybe eight-month periods. She had one run where she went really far up, and then it just all dropped off and looked terrible. You thought that it was done. Before that, there was no sign that really that she would ever go top 20, and then she ended up getting to top 10, I think, at that stage, maybe eight or something. And then she really dropped off and could barely win a match for about a year, and then came back and made number four in the world. So if you take those sort of two two eight month periods out, there's not a lot there. But you can't just take those two eight month periods out.
2: Mm. I, I think it's interesting you were talking about that that match against Venus Williams, George, and it sticks in my memory partly because I was there. But I specifically remember the tenth. The when she was serving uh, at. Uh, 4-5, it must have been, I think, uh, in the first set of that match. And she had... Oh, no, Venus was serving, I beg your pardon, at 4-5. And Conta had two break points. Uh, and the second... Venus saved the first one. And the second one, second serve, break point, 4-5, Wimbledon final. Venus just mullered a second serve down the middle. She hit her, her first serve, basically. And obviously, Conta basically got nowhere near it. And I think she framed it basically into the ground. And it, it had a massive effect on the game. And Venus kind of, I think, broke her the very next game and barely looked back from that point. And it, it I remember it specifically really taking seemed to take something away from Contra. And every time she got in front of a second serve after that, she never really got near it. And, and Venus won. And it, it felt like a big moment.
1: I, I guess one of the one of the maybe the disappointment you can say it's a disappointment will be, and somebody who will be disappointed is Anki Othavang, who you think if she could maybe have just got an extra year out of her and had a real real decent run at the Fed Cup, now you've got Radicanu as well. And it's kinda of like it's gonna kind of feel like he's gonna feel for such as Anne and Fed Cup fans that we keep getting this crossover period where we've just got one one player who's elite level and then someone else behind them. And what you as we know with the team events, what you really need is you need two real top thirty players, maybe, top twenty even. Um, so, Um and we, we're going to kind of be stuck at the same position. And she's had a couple of good runs in, in Fed Cup, but I guess it's not helped as well the fact that Britain was so low down, but a couple of a really good um, weekends weren't there at Bath and the Copper Box as well, where they did all right.
2: Yeah, I, it's that great frustration. I mean, we've talked about team tennis a lot on this podcast and specifically the the lack of kind of appetite for... A mixed competition, which would be very different, and you would look at it entirely differently. But while it is still, you know, gendered, yeah, it's a long time since we really had a, a properly exciting women's team in Britain.
1: I'm, I'm sort of just realised that I'm talking rubbish there because she had, she had she'd actually announced that she wasn't playing anymore. Uh, BJK, Billy Jean King. <laughs> That's so. true enough. Yeah, she'd retired from that. But yeah, I mean, I, I guess what I was getting to is that she always, apart from that, I don't know whether it was a copper box or bath or maybe both, but apart from those two matches she had a strange relationship with representing great britain um and never really settled in it and i know there was always rumblings that she didn't get on with the other players and that kind of thing so um it was always a strange sort of we never really got to see the best of her representing great britain other than that one wimbledon i suppose
2: yeah and it was always something that made her relationship with the press quite um stodgy to say the least uh, quite apart from various other things, but, you know, every now and again, the Daily Mail, the front of the book, I should should add, you know, someone from news, usually around Wimbledon, would write a story about how Joe Conta wasn't really British, which is incredibly unfair and, frankly, just completely unreasonable, because she was born in Australia and, you know, she didn't represent Great Britain in tennis terms, I think, until 2012, um, you know, which is just completely unreasonable, Um, And I think some people will always see the world through that particular lens. But I think she sometimes saw that as what we all thought in the press and therefore didn't feel such an obligation. We should say she played 30 Fed Cup matches um, in total. So it wasn't as though she never turned up. But as you say, she had a difficult relationship with it. Of course, she wasn't always fit. You know, as you mentioned, she had periods of being out of the game because, because of injury and That always makes it harder to commit to something like Fed Cup and potentially a surface change and flying halfway around the world just to play maybe two matches. Um, Yeah, and kind of what I wanted to come on to was the clip that everyone will know, the famous media clip at Wimbledon where actually a former colleague of mine, Matt Dunn at the Express, asks her about, you know, a, a big moment in a match that she had fluffed and whether that was something that she needed to work on to become, you know, someone who wins Grand Slam. And she acted, I think, overreacted and called it a disrespectful question. And she said that she was just an elite sports person who had done their best, and there wasn't much more than that. Um, George, you were obviously around the press pack at the time and will know lots of candid feelings within the pack on her, um, many of which you won't be able to share. But, you know, do you think that's a fair interpretation of, of that particular moment and her overall relationship with the press
0: well for that particular moment I mean, i'll mean, i never forget it because i was actually sat directly in front of matt dunn so i was really denied <laughs> by her during that entire answer so i was um i mean it was one of those where i could kind of see it from both sides but she definitely gave him a little jibe first and then he you know it, it's a different level of handling questions isn't it compared to like coming to a kind of British tabloid, more football-based journalist compared to what, you know, typically the tour is quite a soft place in terms of yeah. how the questions are asked. So it's a little bit more jarring, I suppose. Look, it, it was always a bit of a funny relationship um, when I came on the scene between on the press. I mean, I, I remember this has got a bizarre... Um, Bizarre memory that I've definitely not spoken about or written before, but I interviewed Conta once at, um, I, mean, I interviewed her a couple of times, but well, one time was at the WTA uh, party that they sometimes had before Wimbledon, and I remember just, I was trying to ask a question about her being like um, a figure of advice for the kind of younger Fed Cup girls from the British team, as it was then coming I mean, through, so you know, Baltas, Swan, whatever, and she was kind of... I just remember her basically accusing me of calling her old. It was this very bizarre, like little exchange, but it, it wasn't done in like a really "why are you calling me old?" awful, but just kind of it was slightly jarring humor sometimes, where it didn't quite come across as I think she meant it. And I think I think she's quite a smart person. Conter, and I remember a lot of press conferences and the build-ups. This Matt Dunn incident, where we, as people within the game, knew behind the scenes she was lobbying. Um, in her role on like, the WTA Player Council, for example, she was being really passionate uh, vocal figure and very impressive figure, speaking about kind of sexism within tennis and particularly with scheduling and whatever. And, you know, after that match with Vondrusova, which she lost um, in the French Open semi-finals, but had to play on the third French court, th- third right. show court, um, Simone Mathieu, which is a lovely court, by the way, probably my favourite court in tennis, but that's by the by. She and and she was asked six times in that conference at different levels. And I remember I could f- sense the frustration building in the room when people were asking this question when everyone knows she's talking so passionately about this behind the scenes. It's just it's such an open goal. where you all want to support her. And she, you can just hear she the famous thing was she'd go, um at the start of every question. She gives herself that time to think, which is totally all right. I'm not gonna go at her or anything. But she's always worried about being tripped over. And I think it was that kind of double nature where Sometimes what you're saying is she was
2: saying privately things that would have gone down really well publicly, yeah, absolutely. So scared of saying anything publicly that she wasn't able to get the good stuff out.
0: And it's very different to Andy in the sense that Andy, you ask Andy a question, he'll give you an answer, he'll give you a a fairly straight answer most of the time. He'll at least answer the question, Joe. You know, and that's you know, perhaps that's me placing too much expectation on it from a kind of media side. And I know we always are tempted to look through that lens but sometimes there were times and that, that that was the tournament just before this incident that happened at Wimbledon and it was again in that press conference at Wimbledon where you could see it building up and building up where she actually could have removed the tension from the situation by going what well, you know what yeah I blew it I messed up you know then people don't go after you it's, it's always that oh it's the process it's the process it's the process and, and you know she, you know it's not right and that's where that kind of issue comes in because, for and I'm not saying it's right one way or another, by the way, but a headline for the male after she's gone out of Wimbledon, losing to the world number, of whatever stroke of it was, 85, saying, oh, it's just the process. It's never going to happen. You know, they wanted to know, I blew it. It was rubbish. I messed up, but I'll be back stronger or whatever. Yeah. You know, is And the human element sometimes wasn't there. She wouldn't let her guard down. And I think that's where that kind of tension grew from.
2: I mean, you mentioned that sometimes we do look through the media lens too much, and I'm always conscious, especially with us, of trying to take ourselves out of that position. But it is part of the game. And, you know, you only need to look at, well, I don't know. Alex, I'll give you an example, actually, I was thinking about the other day. Um, Nick Kyrgios and Alex de both elite-level tennis players, once upon a time. I know Calvin's going to say part-time. Both... Grand Slam quarterfinalists, both likeable, interesting, whatever, people. One of them is a lot better known than the other, and it's not the one who is a better, higher-ranked tennis player. And it's simply because one of them is happy to speak his mind and the other isn't. Uh, well, I mean, that's maybe a little unfair on Alex, but he doesn't speak his mind quite so uh, explosively as Nick Kyrgios does. And I think that players you know, maybe it's the way they're advised, maybe it's the way they just want to run their own lives, but like, you know, Joe Conta has $10 million career prize money. She maybe has half that in various sponsorships and endorsements. I don't know. I'm pulling a figure completely out of my ass there, but it will. It, I'm absolutely sure that if you compare that to a player with similar achievements, you know, multiple semifinals, world number four, four titles, that she will have a lower number in terms of endorsement money made because, she wasn't as interesting. She wouldn't generate as many headlines. She wasn't in front of as many eyeballs.
1: Even before any of that stuff, the stuff with the, the guy from the Express and that kind of thing, there was the interview she did on Jonathan Ross, where she seemed to go on there specifically trying to make it as awkward as possible. Um, and, you know, she, yeah, she, she might have been nervous or that kind of thing, but it didn't really appear that way. It was her first big interview that she'd done on television, and it was quite a big thing at the time. And she, she active, She it seemed like she'd actively tried to make the interview as awkward as it could possibly be. And and Jonathan Ross, who's obviously done thousands of interviews, he just didn't really know where to go with it because of the way that she was responding to questions. She was sort of a cross between sort of three and four word answers and then accusing him of being rude and that kind of thing. And it, it, it was so weird. And he thought like, what? I don't really get what the game. Cause he didn't, he didn't ask her anything out of order at all. And, but she came on almost like expecting that that's what he would do. So she'd go on the attack early. And it was just made a terrible, terrible interview.
0: I suppose that's kind of what I was touching on with, with my thing at the WTA party where it didn't, it was just such, it just got a little bit awkward and odd for a few moments. And it, I, I, don't, I don't know, but I, I again I think it's just a total paradox. I don't necessarily think she's a. I didn't leave interviews being like, oh, God, she hated me there or whatever. It's just she had quite a funny way about her. Um, yeah, it's kind of hard to explain. You know, some athletes, some people are like that. It's not, and this is where I'm trying to say it should, it's not like a a blame game one way or the other. And there were times where. You know, was trying to speak about lots of um, interesting anecdotes from her personal life and was trying to be really friendly and when she was on the song it was quite a friendly atmosphere but yeah I mean I would just say it just never quite clicked between her and the press pack compared to say Andy is the other obvious person to compare to. I
1: mean I don't think that's necessarily just with the press pack as well. As I said, as I touched on there that there was the some of the stuff around the Fed Cup and the Billie Jean King Billie Jean King Cup. I mean I know that the one where she she have, she said that she wasn't going to be playing. Uh, I think it was one of the last ones before lockdown. Said she wasn't going to be playing because she needed rest. Um, and then Bratislava. booked. Sorry, which one, George?
0: Bratislava, I think.
1: Yeah, maybe that one. Yeah, and she she then booked the practice court next to where the Fed Cup, the the Bj King Cup GB team was practicing at the NTC and practiced on the next court to them when she pulled out of the match because she said she needed rest and practiced for the whole three days that they were there on the courts next to them. And, it, and it's like that, I don't get why you do that. I mean, it's in London. Like, If you're a good tennis player in London, she will be a member at Wimbledon and she'll be she'll probably be a member at Queen's as well. Just book a court elsewhere yeah. like, if you're going to do that. It just seems like the only reason that I can think why you do that is, is either that you haven't even considered it at all or you just don't mind coming across as a bit of an ass, Yeah. And, yeah.
2: And it's, it's funny, that, that Jonathan Ross thing, like that was a huge opportunity. Jonathan Ross is one of the biggest for, for people who don't listen in the UK. He, well, he still does a very big chat show, and then it was even bigger. It's on primetime television on a free TV channel that probably gets watched by 10 million people in the UK every day most of whom will never have heard of Joe Conter, or, if they had, only in passing. And that was her opportunity to be like, hi, I'm Joe Conter. This is me. And, you know, it's another kind of missed opportunity. So it's fascinating. And, and, you know, I think from what she said, um, it feels like she is happy with her career and you only ever can be when you retire. Um, And that she kind of says, well, I did it my way, for want of a better word.
0: Yeah, I was just going to say, I mean, I, I just want to say, I think we, it sounds like we're almost being a bit negative towards her career, which I, I don't want to feel that's like the case either. Um, so I was just going to ask you, what were your your highlights from concert's career as well? Because, I mean, there were some amazing moments. I've and never
2: eaten before. one of her muffins, but I hear they're lovely. <laughs> She's an excellent baker. That that was always the one kind of thing that every single Wimbledon preview would would kind of come up to that.
0: Um, she Bake Off, didn't she? Yeah, she
2: did Celebrity Bake Off. Yeah, um, say, with oh, she did it with that Carolyn Quentin and someone else. Uh, yeah, that's a hell of a bag for me. But just the on.
0: one, one, one title we haven't mentioned that was probably the biggest and most memorable was probably Miami, wasn't it? Twenty seventeen. Yes, massive title beat um, Venus. I think on the way, Beat it was Aki in the final. Mm. Um, I mean, Halep for me, the well, Wimbledon run,
2: like any British player getting deep at Wimbledon, is always going to be. And that was a few months after Miami. Um, she beat Halep in the in the quarterfinal. You know, which she was the number two seed at the time. Um, she, yeah, I, that that will always be get getting that far. Probably with the quarterfinal being the highlight. Uh, but <laughs> and then I remember the moment when she lost the match against Venus halfway through. And
0: no, that's so it's funny to say that because I was just about to say. I think the best match I ever saw her play was when she hammered Sloane Stephens in the French Open, maybe quarters or fourth round. Uh, but the memories tar for me from the disaster that was a Sova match one or two later, when she just missed some of the. She went for some bizarre drive volleys of like massive points when she could have just let it bounce, or stepped in further and volleyed home. Whatever. I mean, she, there were just so many great moments. Always just felt minorly clouded afterwards. Might I mean, there's a problem, problem right? A problem. If you don't
2: win a Grand Slam title, you're never going to have a perfect Grand Slam memory because you yeah. haven't won one. It's always going to be tarred by the fact that you lost the next match or one of I the guess, next four matches.
0: But to counter that, her losing to Angelique Kerber or whatever in the 2016 Australian Open semis, you know, you don't begrudge her that because then she goes on to beat Serena Williams in the final. It's the other ones where you know, the what-ifs, I think. I suppose what-if is where I would leave Conta's career, in many ways. Right,
2: quite possibly. But then, you know, uh, she she probably had a lot of what-ifs that she succeeded in passing. Well, yeah. You know, what I think she's...
0: Greatly overachieved, if that yeah, makes
2: sense. I would agree with that. Calvin, can you disagree with Joanna Conta, a great overachiever? Uh,
1: no, I think overall, yeah, she... Uh, I, don't, I don't think, like George said at the start, I don't think anyone would have predicted that she'd have ended up um, anywhere near where she she did end up. So, yeah, big overachiever.
2: Um, we've just got a few minutes left in, in the first half, so maybe it'd be a good time to squeeze in um, Igor Shontek's uh, news, and then we'll we'll talk about the Cup final in, in greater depth a little bit later on. Um, she's split with her coach, and i am sort of been weighing up whether to give it a go or not. Uh, Piotr is his first name, and I'm going to go with Szupotowski, um, is his surname. There's, there's a lot of Scrabble points in that. Uh, they've been working together for nearly six years. Um, she posted on Instagram on Saturday uh, in uh, Polish and English, fortunately. Um, I've started my preseason, but after more than five years, I've decided to finish my cooperation with Piotr. This change is really challenging for me. This decision wasn't easy. As tennis players, we meet a lot of people on our path and a lot of people who contribute great value into our work and often into our life too. Um an interesting move. George, any, any early
0: thoughts about uh why, wherefore, how? Um, I was gonna say first of all, I reckon it's Sears Potowski would be my guess. Wow. Good That's effort. Go
2: I look well, I look forward to as with Annette Conservate, say,
0: um, on one
2: of our Polish listeners will get in touch <laughs> on Twitter at Love Tennis Pod and let us know. Yeah.
0: Um I'm not gonna try and say it again anyway, because I could probably can't say <laughs> it the same way twice. you get a different diss- yeah. Um, not overly surprised because I think again we all think Sviantec's underachieved this season even though she's, I think, was she the only female player to reach all four the, the fourth round of each slam? So, I think. Degree, how would
2: I mean? I'm fascinated how you think I like, just
0: have that stat off top of my head. <laughs> I um, just seem to remember that was the case earlier this year. I might be wrong. But, say it
2: with confidence, and then if someone no, fact, okay. checks,
0: fact checks, someone will make that That's if it's wrong. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I suppose there was a degree of consistency there if, if my made up stat is right. Um, but we all think she could be doing more. I think, I think the way she put it across on Instagram. As much as these can be a bit kind of airy fairy, I'm going to miss this coach so much. Is awful, blah blah blah. But the, the bit she kind of says about really grateful for this guy who's got me to where I am now, but need to take a step up, change. You know, they've worked together for six years, quite a long time. I think it's six. And years you know, ago. she's
2: a, and she's also only twenty, or she's yeah, really so twenty-one.
0: So you know, you know, probably a fair it's, time. It's, to it's her whole pro career. Yeah. Um, but who knows? I mean, the, the proof is always in the pudding, and we'll see how it goes for her next season. But I think that's a pretty dream job for whoever um, does walk into that. I think she's working with one of Rodvanska's former coaches, and uh, there's a lot of similarities in her game to Rodvanska uh, in terms of the touch and short play, but got a bit more power behind her. Um, yeah. So should be should be interested. But I'd say that's about a dream job for anyone at the minute that they could go and pick up a twenty-year-old's and um, Calvin,
2: you've already got your dream job, I know, so you won't be interested. Um, but uh, I can imagine there will be lots of other coaches who are sort of refreshing their CVs and digging out Svantec's agent's number,
1: do you think? Well, they weren't for Emirat were they? <laughs> um, I don't know. I don't, maybe there just aren't many coaches who fancy working with these players. You don't know. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Yeah, and, you know, we know my thoughts on coaching at the top level of the women's game. It's pretty pants. Mm-hmm. Um, but he, he was a, a very, very good one. I mean, he. you know, this is not... As I've said before, there, there's ways of judging coaches. And, and, like, the one that I'm always wary of is when coaches say they've worked with somebody. Because that doesn't necessarily mean anything. You know, you can get, like, who's the better coach? If, if you take Boris Becker, who worked worked with... Novak Djokovic, for him winning, I don't know, five slams when, was it five or six maybe? I six,
0: I think it was yeah. six.
1: But the guys won like 14 without him. So, you, you know, it's one of those. Or is a better coach, somebody who takes a player from no ranking in the world to 250 in three years. Because mm. that, that's really doing something. So just going, you get a lot of these. And in the women's game, there's a lot of these coaches who whose CVs are full of things like worked with. And it just means they've done six weeks with a player who's twenty in the world. But you don't judge a coach by that. You judge them on improvement. And 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 Shvontek's coach has brought her from basically not even being on the scene in juniors into winning a slam within about three years. That's serious coach, and I'm surprised that they've split. And 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 I don't know who. She, I'm, I suspect that she'll be getting a lot of um, a lot of calls to work with her, but I suspect he's getting just as many to go and work with, to, to work with him.
0: Calvin I'm really interested to know about how a coach CV looks could we see your coaching CV <laughs> one week? I really would love to see this and just um, like you can you see it, it yeah
1: I mean I, I'm always a bit where I well I actually have one of my best mates has a um a, a small company that that makes CV so he's done mine for me so he changes it round a bit but um yeah, you can see it. I have no problem with <laughs> showing anyone <it>. here. <laughs> I'm
0: just interested in what, what you kind of put on there as you were like, um, I don't know, like I suppose you've got your qualifications. Yeah,
1: it's, it's a difficult, and, and for that reason, for, for the reasons I've said, it it's a difficult one because some of the things that you'll put on a CV, they don't look that impressive if, if your only information is reading what you're seeing on the CV. So you might see, you know, if you put like rankings of players you've worked with, you could put like 750 in the world and it doesn't look that great, but that guy might have been somebody who no one ever expected to ever have a world ranking and he's got 750 and then uh, equally you could put, somebody might put, worked with, I don't know, um, Barbara, Sh- Barbara Strikova and and she's won slams in doubles, but they might have done a six week stint with her and she realised they were rubbish at coaching so binned them, mm-hmm. but he's still got on the CV so yeah, it is difficult <laughs> For the job. when
2: you move there all sorts of
1: noise sorry so yeah it's not like um a normal cv job yeah you kind of like and that's why most i guess that's why most of the jobs in tennis are put around by word of mouth and not through job application because I, I also don't think it's a very good way to apply for jobs in tennis coaching. and that's a discussion i've had with governing body over here that when they advertise for national coaches they ask for cvs and covering letters and i don't think that's appropriate for tennis at all
2: now i mentioned at the top of the show that the uh, tennis season has finally drawn to a close for a whole two weeks or something uh, with the davis cup finals uh, closing out in madrid Uh, it was a victory for the russian tennis federation which i think we pretty much all agreed they were the favorites because they had the number 2 and the number 5 singles player in the world and they didn't even go down to their doubles as they beat Croatia in straight sets in the final um their run there wasn't without incident uh they uh they they did um drop the odd set and the odd match they were required to go down to doubles uh, on one occasion so there there was you know some jeopardy when they uh on their way there, but mostly, I think we all expected the R.T.F. to triumph. Um, Daniil Medvedev beat Marin Cilic seven six six two to close it out after Andre Rublev had beaten Borna Gojo, perhaps the breakout star of these Davis Cup finals. Um, we, we, I suppose, we should start really with the winners, George uh, Rublev. The odds slip up on a sort of personal level. He he dropped a set to Elias Ima in uh, the quarterfinals against. Uh, Sweden, who were, again, in one of the surprise packages. He dropped a set to Roberto Quirosh, which, again, he should really never be doing. Um, He was beaten by Feliciano Lopez. So, far from perfect, but I suppose when it mattered, he he got the job done.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, as you say, Russia really should be winning this um, competition on singles. I think the big shame for this Davis Cup in terms of, I mean, I, I actually thought it was quite a good week. So, I'm not, not having a go at it completely, but just in terms of Russia and it actually being competitive, if you think about the way Russia are going to lose tires, you need someone, you either need someone who's going to beat Medvedev. There's t- the two guys out there at the minute who you would say are about 50 50 with Medvedev on, on this sort of surface, and that's Zverev and Djokovic. Yeah. Zverev hasn't played, Djokovic hasn't played him. So, you know, that, that's basically you're guaranteeing Medvedev to win every other match, you know, barring a complete random act at the minute Rublev on paper should be beating everyone else who's the second player however he's come in out of form so you you know who's then got a strong number two could give him a go you know normally you'd maybe be looking at a country like Canada in that sense where you've got Shapovalov and Felix Ogier alesine you know neither of whom of course played. played um Spain, you know, maybe getting would would Alcaraz have been number two for them this time? Uh, it's a good
2: question. If everyone had played, I, he probably wouldn't have been, isn't he? Well, not, not
0: if Nadal was there, but if, if he was at least in the squad, so it wasn't, he's the, he but behind, he is I, the
2: Spanish number four.
0: So four, so but they might have picked him at two, yeah. I guess. The yeah, for match up, um, so. so you know that that's someone who could have taken Rublev, perhaps. Yeah. Um So you know, <laughs> there's not many countries actually in those positions who should, on paper, really be able to trust. A, Trouble, Russia, in this format of needing to beat the two singles players. Croatia were the best doubles team by a mile. Yes,
2: um, Meckisch Me- and Pavic are the the world number one doubles pair, and they were um, pretty. I think they were unbeaten. In fact, I'm almost certain they were unbeaten on their way to the final. And of course, in the final, they weren't required.
0: So, given the final, given the final. You've got you need to go goyo yeah or gojo, yeah, um, go- yeah, to to beat Rublev, and that was the first match. That, that was the only way that tie hinged, as far as I was concerned. There's no way Chilich was going to beat Medvedev. Um, this Chilich wasn't going to come near to him. And there's no way the Croatians, to my mind, were going to lose to so that Russian doubles pairing. Is good. They're good, but th- these Croatian guys are so good, yeah. I don't think they'll lose them. So it kind of came down to the first tie. So once Rublev had wrapped that up in straight sets, didn't really have that big an appeal for me um, as a kind of final. Um, and, and it proved. Um, but... That, it Feels like, like you're a, nitpicking. Feels like you're nitpicking, George. Um, I mean, it it should, would have been you know, better. I think just constraints the of having the the not having two lots of singles players play each other twice. It it kind of reduces the jeopardy on the singles. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know. I just don't see Russia losing many matches when they've got. Well, one I mean,
2: what you what you've got really in the final there is the two types of team who can win this tournament, which is the team with one brilliant doubles pair. That means in order to beat them you need to win both singles matches and the team that has two brilliant singles players, which means in order to beat them, you need an upset in the singles match and a good doubles team. Um, And, you know, it's a bit like when you get a a big guy and a little guy, a a good biggan beats a good un, as they say in boxing. Um, And that, I think, is probably what happened in in the final. It would have been nice, and I won't say this very often, if Alexander Zverev had played, because then you would have had potentially RTF versus Germany, who Germany did very well, Beat Britain in a, a tie that we maybe discuss a little in a moment, but you know they they got into the semis with Dominic Kurtfer and Yannick Struff and then Kevin Currett and Tim Puets, who are a very good doubles pair. And we should touch on the, the British tie because we watched a fair bit of it, and of course I know a lot of you will have been following it eagerly. Uh, late on uh, Tuesday night, I think it was, and um, Dan Evans beat uh, beat doesn't even cover it. He thrashed Peter Gorgiocik. Um, for the loss of just three games. Dan called it the, the best tennis of potentially his life. Uh, I think it's easy to play very good tennis when your opponent is dumping second serves in halfway up the net. Um, the first eight points on the Gacocic serve heralded four break points, uh, four double faults, sorry, um, and many, many break points beyond that. Um, and then the the sort of upset of the day was, was Cam Norrie losing to to Jan-Leonard Struf in three sets. He lost the first and a tie-break, won the second, and then Struf had a toilet break and then came back and won. So I think we can all see what happened there. And then, yeah, uh, a tense, tight doubles match. No serves broken between Salisbury, Skupski, Kravitz and Poots. Both uh, went to tie-breaks 12-10. Uh, and then in the deciding tie-break, Salisbury and Skupski blew a five-love lead and lost seven straight points to uh, to seal the tie for Germany. Um, Calvin, I think you pretty much picked Britain to win that tie on the basis that Joe and Neil would, would get the job done. Um, I mean, understandably, I spoke to Joe afterwards and he was absolutely gutted, um, which he would be. So uh, a real surprise to see them blow a position, especially like that.
1: Yeah, um, it was such a strange doubles match, really. And that, that not only were there any breaks of serve, I don't think any. There was never anything close to a break of serve, were there? I think maybe first set there was a set point, a break point. that was a set point, I think, um, in the very foot in the in the six five game. But other than that, it just seemed every game was held to like fifteen or to love. Um, and it, it was strange. I think what the thing what stood out as well from this different from doubles on the main tour. And which which helps the server hugely is that there was they've done away with the no ad scoring, um, which makes it in 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 normal doubles on the tour, if it's if it's if it's juice, you can have a swing at something and break. Whereas it's it's unlikely that that's going to happen two points in a row and on a fast indoor court with four good doubles players, it's tough to break serve.
2: Mm. Yeah, uh, I thought that was. I mean, is that also to an extent? And you'll know this much better than me when you get two very good doubles pairs up against each other in the men's game, and as you say, in a fast indoor court, you often will get a very serve-dominated match?
1: Yeah, because the, the way that the doubles systems work, and Britain has their own doubles system, which I know pretty well, and but I, I, I always assume that maybe the other countries have very similar, or the players have very similar ones. They all make certain moves. So it, it's much more of a game of... It's much more of a, of a predictable game, doubles. And it's almost like a... It's like for anyone who, who plays poker, you, you play the odds. You know what they're – if they've done this, it means they're likely to do this, but it, it doesn't necessarily mean they will. So everything's kind of – you're hedging your, your bets – Whereas in singles everything's more random. There's so many different things can happen. In doubles, no matter any situation, it's usually only one of two things can happen. Like, like you'll you'll serve if if you if you serve T, the 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 net the service partner will either cross or they'll stay. And the returner is always thinking about that. What are they likely to do here on based on what they've done before? And as it happened in that match. They they basically none of the pairs managed to out outguess the other pair that or outthink them. They all did exactly as they thought they would.
2: Mm. George, I mean, I was well working on, on a paper deadline, so I was particularly disappointed with the way it unfolded. As much as the result itself, um, how surprised were you to see Cam Norrie undone by Jan and Struik? And I know what you're going to say, but you have to say it anyway.
0: Well, I mean, I. I think, I think I said last week that Struff's one of those guys that is just not ideal to play in a kind of one-off match. Like, I don't see him winning many tournaments where he's going to beat six guys in a row, but he's always someone to avoid first couple of rounds. Um, and I, I'm pretty sure I said that last week with this tie and why I wasn't quite as confident as you guys were. Um, I thought Evans was... The player more at risk, to be honest, say, so well, I predicted the tie right. I predicted it right for the wrong reasons, I suppose. I'd I mean, it should <laughs> be
2: pointed out that Germany picked their number three player, Peter Kuczyk, yeah. who, who had barely hit a ball all week against yeah. uh, in uh, ahead of Dominic Kürtfer, who played pretty well. And as we've discussed before, is, is a decent matchup against Evo. And, like, they just cast him aside and picked Kuczyk. So, I mean, you know, yeah, it, they handed it,
1: was it to him. He um, a five-match losing streak as well, wasn't he, we, at the time? Yeah, he, right?
2: has a, he hasn't won a match since about August.
0: <laughs> yeah, and it kind of showed, didn't it? Um, but <laughs> yeah, hugely. I felt Cam and Struff was, even though Cam's had the far better year, I still always have that down as a pretty 50-50 match for a one-off random match. Yeah. Um, yeah, that, that kind of proved in the end. And then the doubles felt, again, to me, fairly 50-50 given. And it and it was, I mean, as Calvin says, you know, it was pretty pretty good doubles all round in terms of getting the jobs done, looking after the serves, not really giving too much away. And it, it comes down to a few kind of points in the end. So it's a tough one. I mean, on paper, once that kind of second player, Kepfer, had been taken out, had I seen that, I probably would have said Britain will win this um, with Evans coming up against their number three rather than number two. But um, yeah, it, it, was a, it was a tough one to take. And But they've been given a wild card into the finals, which I don't really understand, I have to say, next year. that's a- Yeah,
2: sorry. Just just to explain the kind of process there for people who've missed it or, like me, don't
0: really understand how it's working next year. Uh, OK, so... They've changed the format next year. So this year was 18 teams as it has been the last two editions since they came into this new version. Um, They're finally getting rid of this hideous group stage format where it's just totally confusing who the hell is going to go through as the kind of second runner-up. And they're going to four groups of four teams. Um, So that means they've taken two teams out going down from 18 to 16. Um, So before they were giving out... Four wild cards, I think. Right. No, no, they were, sorry. They had four automatic places before. So, the semi finalists from the previous events and the finalists would qualify automatically. Um, and then they'd have two wild cards on top of that. So, what they've done this year instead is the finalists have gone straight through. So, Russia and Croatia have automatically qualified. And then they've used the two wild cards, which have remained for Serbia, which makes sense. You want Djokovic to play because he's the biggest player in the world who guarantees he's going to turn up to these things. And they're going to Great Britain um, which, for the moustaches, obviously. Obviously, um, perhaps that's hoping Murray will play. I don't know. Um, it seems a bit odd. I don't think Britain really need a leg up, and kind of, I guess, as a side note, while it's good, they're going to be at the finals because that would not necessarily be a guarantee. Um, I don't think, generally speaking, um, yeah. it does mean that there won't be any kind of home opportunity to play in March. Um, because because
2: it, it had they not got that wild card they would have a home tie potentially they have a
0: home or away yeah so you kind of lose the thing we like about the old Davis Cup but guarantees we won't have that uh, this yeah. year um, so I guess you have to kind of weigh that up and then I think I'm right in saying that they're going to four different host cities one for each group stage yeah. um, and, and then, then a then
2: fifth like neutral host city which, which is going to be Abu Dhabi, yeah Well, yes, as reported by Simon Briggs in The Telegraph last week, they had lined up Abu Dhabi. They were due to hold a press conference to announce that on Sunday today, as we're recording it uh, in Madrid. They then cancelled the the sort of event, which was supposed to be a kind of swanky do. They then said, "Well, we'll still have a press conference. And then they announced at that press conference that there would be an announcement to confirm who it was and that the discussion is ongoing. Um, I assume what's happened here, Jordan, you may correct me, is that uh, moving the Davis Cup finals to Abu Dhabi has gone down like a wet fart um, and they're desperately trying to scramble to save some PR face.
0: Um, well, that that would be the thing that would make sense as an assumption, but actually, <laughs> given the comments from uh, David Haggerty, is the uh, president of the ITF, um, doesn't seem to actually have been that case. So, um, they're, they're still saying they're just it hasn't been finalised the contract signing, but it's still going to be the same place, which implies it is still going to be Abu Dhabi. And then he rather humorously it, it made me think of Nigel Pearson calling that journalist having his, an ostrich who had his head in the sand. Yeah, uh, Haggerty said he wasn't aware of any opposition to it, going there, <laughs> which I found quite remarkable.
1: The thing with the thing with David Haggerty and the people who work there, I don't know. It's like they, they, they live in a different population because I've not seen any. What you, I mean, he's, he's, either mis, he's either confused the word um, opposition with support because I've not seen a single person <laughs> who supports it. Right. But then we forget that David Haggerty, right, oversaw the change in the ranking system, lower down um, the, the, the men's and women's game um a couple maybe two or three years ago where they completely changed it they completely changed the tournament they, they create a whole new ranking system and they said that then that they'd they'd canvassed the opinions of seventeen thousand people involved in tennis and this is what they'd come up with right i work in tennis and i know lots of people who work in tennis and Let's say I probably spoke to about 50 people during that time. Not one of them, no, no players, no coaches or anything, had ever been spoken to by the ITF about this system. Not only that, none of those people knew anybody else who'd been spoken to about it. So like, I want to know who these 17,000 people were that they canvassed opinions for this. But that was a complete disaster. They ended up having to ditch that and go back to the old system after four months that's how much of a disaster that was. So I assume this Davis Cup's going to be the same. It's ridiculous to be saying that he's not heard any opposition, he's not heard any single opposition to it. Absolutely nobody wants to go to Abu Dhabi.
2: I mean, it's Trumpian sort of um, PR. It's If you say it, it doesn't matter if it's not true. If you just keep saying it, it eventually yeah. becomes true.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I'm sure plenty of the nations are quite happy to go there, which is probably who he's referring to by saying he's got no opposition in the sense of are we going to be able to keep all this cash from Cosmos well yes if we take this thing to Abu Dhabi that that'll work and keep all the money going into your pockets um but yeah I mean look as Calvin mentioned uh, with the kind of I think it's called like the world pro tour I mean it seems such a long time ago now rankings whatever they were called the ITF ones um I mean Everyone in tennis at that time was like, This is terrible. I I literally did not speak to one person who worked in tennis who thought this is a sensible idea, and that's people from all sorts of countries, proper professionals. Um, players couldn't get in
1: the tournament. This is the main thing players couldn't get in the tournaments. I think, like, I think there's two there's about 2,200 world ranked players. Um, and I think for that four months, anyone ranked outside of about 600 couldn't actually play a tennis tournament. So their careers were just done because of the way they'd done it.
2: Mad. Um, yeah, I, I think I would be fascinated to hear from any listeners who can give me a good argument or who are in support of the Davis Cup final in Abu Dhabi. Uh, I, I won't um, hold my breath.
0: Just just one more thing on that ranking system. because That was one of the things I really was pushing quite hard for when I was really in the thick of it and going after people all the time and being speaking to a lot of low-ranked players who are having a terrible time. And Obviously, while doing this, you're in the communication with the ITF all the whole time. It was so funny because they're always just like, We all we're saying on this is 100% it's not changing back. There's no way we're yeah. going back on this. It just needs time to realize it's going to be put up. And as Calvin said, there was just the more hilariously embarrassing U turn just about four or five months in. Um, but I mean, I can't even remember the name of the rankings now, so it's not that embarrassing, I suppose. Uh, in the it's not place.
1: even that, though, because David Haggerty, before he tried that, completely decimated the American ranking and competition structure. He brought in a new system in there, there before he got the ITF job, which was a complete disaster, and they had to end up having to ditch that after about seven months as well, and that was entirely on him. And then he left there and got the job with the ITF and then start tried doing the exact same thing there, succeeded, and that went down the pan.
2: Oh, a real career of success. Does, does he know Dido Harding? I feel like they might get one. Um, I mean, both their initials are DH. This surely can't be a coincidence. Have you ever seen them in the same room? Maybe they're the same person.
1: They work Dido on the Hard- same meritocracy. I know that much.
0: <laughs> Dido Harding would be very proud of that mustache, though. That is one thing David Haggerty does too. Do.
2: <laughs> can't deny that. Um again, uh, uh, difficult to segue, but I did say at the beginning of the show, we would talk about Peng Shui and, and the latest coming out of China and uh, out of Florida as well, uh, regarding that. Um, the WTA have suspended all their tournaments in China next year um, because of the lack of clarity, because of the censorship of Peng Shui's story, which we've talked about before, and which I would urge you to go and try and read uh, if you can um, lots of criticism coming from Daniel Medvedev and I saw Novak Djokovic talking about it uh, at the Davis Cup as well. Um, the Chinese responded by claiming that they've been using the Global Times, uh, which is uh, an English language newspaper, a propaganda newspaper that is owned by the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, they claimed that there were no WTA tournaments scheduled in China next year, which is a lie um, because they claimed that because there were none last year, there wouldn't be any next year. Um, which I think is, if you can't see why that's wrongheaded, then I think you might be working for the CCP. Um, they also claim that the WTA are coercing Peng Shui to support the West's attack on China. Um, I think I don't think there's a huge amount to say. I want to talk about it uh, as usual because I think it's important to keep talking about it. If you don't know the story in full, just Google her name. Because we live in a free democracy, you're able to do that. A reminder that if you do that in China, you will only find two search results um, from about seven years ago about her winning a tournament uh, in France, of course, the French Open. Um, so, uh,
0: George, anything to add? I think just, again, the the only thing to say is it will be interested to see how much the pressure builds on the ATP on this side of things as well. I mean, they put out a bit of a fluffy statement on it, but they had people like Medvedev saying he... He wouldn't be that comfortable going to China now um, as a player until this is resolved. So there's a little bit of a kind of watching brief, I suppose, on how they handle it um, and whether they do pull out. I don't think any calendars really come out that means they're going to China anytime soon anyway. Well, they quite smartly,
2: I believe, they have only released their calendar for the first half of the year. Which wouldn't ordinarily include China anyway, so they've kind of I thought that. Was, they've kind of dodged the question a bit. Down the Road. Um, Can yeah, I just so read out a little bit of Andrea Gadenzi's statement? Um, this came out on the second of December, so this is Thursday last week. The situation involving Peng Shui continues to raise serious concerns within and beyond our sport. The response to those concerns so far has fallen short. We again urge for a line of open, direct communication between the player and WTA in order to establish a clearer picture of the situation. We know that sport can have a positive influence on society and generally believe that having a global presence gives us the best chance of creating opportunity and making an impact. We continue to consult with our members and monitor any developments as this issue evolves. I mean, it's hardly Nelson Mandela stuff, is it? It's it's a bit weak. Um, but, you, you know, I, I, and some people will say, well, what do you expect the ATP to do? And it's like, well, they only have to look across the office virtually at what the WTA are doing. And you can immediately see what they're supposed to do and what they could do. Um, I, I think continuing to consult is not going to do anything.
0: I think the, the other thing that was kind of briefly came up this week, more in the Swiss and German press, actually was talking a little bit about Roger's connections in China and why he's perhaps a little bit reluctant to kind of get massively um, involved, etc. Um, so that that may be one just to keep an eye on when he, if and when he returns to the tour, if this hasn't resolved itself, there might be a few kind of classic tennis conflicts of interest questions, which we all know and love. But to be honest, it'll be some time before I think that becomes serious news, given he's not going to be kicking around
1: on the tour. Just a quick one there, James, on um, when you said that they're going to put their schedule out for the first six months of the year um, and they wouldn't normally go to China then. I don't know about this, but I think that there's usually quite a few challenges um in china earlier on um i'm not sure when or where and i guess they wouldn't have been this year so and whether there would be anyway next year i don't know but lower down the levels there's there tends to be more going on in china and i don't know how that links in with the itf um 25k tournaments as well on both the men's and the women's because are definitely quite a few of those in china in normal times Hmm.
2: That's uh, worth looking into. I mean, yeah, a quick uh, glance at the challenger schedule for the next six months would show no challenges in China. But as you say, um, I'd have to cross ref that with last year. But yeah, there are stances to be taken. Um, and I would encourage you to keep talking about it on social media. George, you've got a pensive face.
0: Yeah, I was going to say, I think the ITF, the, um, they've certainly not made any proclamation of taking events away from them or suspending them at the minute. So, uh, I actually have a statement.
2: I have a, I have a statement from David Haggerty that, of the last couple of hours, if this would help. Um, As the governing body of tennis, we stand in support of all women's rights. The allegations need to be looked into and we'll continue to work behind the scenes directly to bring this to a resolution. But you have to remember that the ITF is the governing body of the sport worldwide. And one of the things we're responsible for is grassroots development. We don't want to punish a billion people. So we'll continue to run our junior events in the country and our senior events that are there for the time being. Yeah, I don't yeah, think you can guess
1: my thoughts on that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, this is this is another thing, because the, the, one of the 25K tournaments, which is what he's talking about, don't make money you need countries to run them who are willing to throw money into them because they lose money. So, And China will be one of the places and he knows that if they don't have them there, he's going to lose a lot of tournaments. And it's also been a bit of a struggle for for Asian players over the last 12 months because they've all had to play in Europe. There's been nothing um, over here. So you've you've got a whole load of... I mean, there's a a Chinese lad who I think has basically been in Greece for something like 20 weeks of this year. Um, Mm. So... It's a strange... Um, but again, we don't know what they'll run there next year anyway because even aside from the Peng Shui thing, with the c- c- corona situation, there wasn't any tournaments in China this year.
2: Mm. Yeah, um, complicated to say the least, but not for the first time. We see people using COVID as an excuse for their own mistakes and cock-ups and worse. Um, Yeah, that's probably all we've got time for this week. Um, I did want to mention a couple of British successes overseas uh, in the last 48 hours. Ryan Peniston, final of uh, a challenger out in Turkey. Uh, I believe it takes him up to a career-high ranking. Um, which is always worth pointing out. He's up to going to be up to two six four uh, tomorrow. The British number eight, um, and I think there was a title. There's at least one British title secured in the last two. two. Billy Harris yeah. winning. in... Billy 12. Harris won 12. one
1: in uh, Antalya, and um, Charlie Broom won one in Greece. Very good. Congratulations to both those. Um,
2: Stuart Parker, I believe. Have I got this right? Stuart Parker? Oh, also Stuart Parker won one as
1: well, the King, King of Monastir. He's won three he's won three British. tournaments, all three of them <laughs> in Monastir. Yes.
2: Uh, and and also a fourth British victory. Um, no relation to me, I should add, Sarah Beth Grey uh, winning a title, a 25k out in the Czech Republic, um, beating Kalikova of Finland. So lots of British tennis success. Any of these names could be the next Emma Rad- Raducanu. Um, you never know. So it's always worth keeping an eye on them and when the summer comes around, do go and watch them uh, and do go and watch them indeed in the extensive indoor uh, schedule around Britain in the next couple of months. Uh, In the meantime, we've been the Love Tennis Pod with George Belshaw, Calvin Bethel and me, James Gray. Thank you very much for listening and we'll catch you all next week.